0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So if you have your Bible tonight, you can open it to 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you want to open on your mobile device to follow along, you can. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers as they uh, pass Bibles out to you and they will... Hand you one, 2 Samuel, it's about that far into your Bible. If you're looking at it from your perspective, it's like that. you know. I'm going to read uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 2. That's where I'm going to take my text from tonight. I'm not going to go through a whole chapter. I got that far, and God gave me something to share with you, and so that's what we're going to do. So let's read uh, from verse 1, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into uh, the message. And so it says in verse 1, it says that it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. Nabal's former widowed, widowed wife. And his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. And so David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that you have showed this kindness unto your Lord, lowercase l, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you or repay you for this kindness, because you have done this thing. Therefore, now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years And six months. And so, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that through the things that have been spoken, you still speak today. And we open our hearts now, Lord, to give attention to what your spirit would press upon our hearts, the things that you want to do, the things that you're doing, the things that we need in this time right now as we sit here. So would you help us, Lord, give us understanding as we seek you in your word. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I would imagine that one of the greatest joys of being an engineer or being an inventor is the day that comes when you finally see your project put into motion and it works. And I imagine that the the more involved, the longer the process was that led you to that point, the more joy there is in seeing the thing actually take off. As we come to this point now in 2 Samuel chapter 2, We see God's long-purposed project in creating a king after his heart being put into use for the first time. David's been through a long season of preparation, and if you've been following us through in these Wednesday night studies, you've seen what God has brought David through in order to prepare him now for this time. And so we see David finally anointed over over one of the 12 tribes, over the tribe of Judah. And we see there God uh, bringing him to that point. You'll see that word in verse uh, four, it uses the word anointed. It says that there they anointed David the king over the house of Israel. And and the idea behind the anointing is that there was a ceremonial or, or solemn or sacred appointment that was made over his life. We see it first in the Old Testament when God told Moses that he was to anoint Aaron to be the high priest. And he was to pour oil over his head. And it was a solemn, sacred symbol of the calling that God had placed upon his life or the appointment of God to Aaron over his life. And as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see that there are times when priests are anointed, either by prophets or other priests, and kings are anointed, usually by uh, prophets, to to serve in a capacity. It's a recognition that God's work is in their life. The word anointed that you see there in verse 4, in the Hebrew language, I'm not going to even bother with pronouncing it for you, Because it doesn't matter today. But what what it means, the word anointed, what it actually means is to smear. That's the first word in the definition. And the idea is that there's oil being poured or smeared over the life. It goes on the definition to say to consecrate, that is to set apart, to appoint, that is to ordain or put someone in a position to empower, to give somebody authority to fulfill the role and the calling to which they're being separated unto. And then I like the last word in the definition. It's the word unseparate. And you would think, okay, what does that mean? Because usually like when someone's consecrated, it means that they're separated. So what does it mean that you're unseparated? The idea is, is that when the oil of anointing comes upon you, it's smeared upon your life in such a way that you can no longer be separated from it. You can't be unseparated from the anointing that now has been placed upon your life. And that is what is going on for David right now. He's being anointed. In the New Testament, we read about the anointing uh, in, in the way of really it just being a recognition or an affirmation of a proven calling of God that's on someone's life. And so when we would ordain or anoint someone as something in the church or in the kingdom of God, it's just simply a recognition affirming what we recognize God to be doing in someone's life. An interesting thing about the concept of anointing in the New Testament is that it isn't limited to priests, prophets, or kings. Anointing in the New Testament is for all believers. First John, John would write to the church and he would say that the anointing that has been given to you from him abides on you. And so the anointing of God under the new covenant is not something given to a few for the benefit of many. It's one that's given to everyone for the benefit of everyone. And so the anointing of God is something that we see all throughout the Bible. Now, when we look at the life of David, whom we're studying and of whom we're seeking God to speak to our lives through, what we see of him is that there were three times in the Bible that he was anointed. There are three separate anointings and that's not by mistake, that's on purpose and it speaks to us even today. The, 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 the anointing that we see in the text in front of us is actually the second time. This is the second time that David has been anointed. The first one was way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse. Samuel was the prophet. He was God's priest. And God had said, go to the house of Jesse and anoint for me one of his sons that I will point out to you when you get there. And so Samuel went to Bethlehem. God, through a series of elimination, pointed to David, and he told Samuel, I want you to now anoint him. And that was the first anointing in David's life. And what I'm going to call it for our study really is the anointing of calling. And you can write that down if you're taking notes, or the anointing of purpose. You can use either one of those words. And the idea behind it is that Samuel had no idea who David was. He had never met him before. There was no background. David was completely unknown by Samuel. He was unknown really to most of his his even neighborhood or to the nation. Nobody knew who David was at that time. And David was completely undecorated. He had accomplished absolutely nothing of any merit for the kingdom of God. He was anointed by Samuel simply based on the fact that God had a calling upon his life. That God had a purpose for him. And and it was purely associated with that. In in the New Testament book of Acts, in in chapter 2, verse 23, Peter uses this phrase that I really like. He says that God works according to the predetermined foreknowledge of God. Now, in Peter's context, he was talking about Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But God works in people's lives according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge that he has. In other words, God can look at a life and he can see something in the life long before that something is ever manifested, and he can anoint someone based upon the calling that he has in their life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the apostle Paul would say that we, the church believers, that we are God's workmanship. We're his work on the wheel. He's shaping something in us that we've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, there's a calling that God sees on the life of every believer before any of the steps of that calling are ever played out. It's a calling, it's a purpose, and it's an anointing according to that calling, okay? It's what's in you. It's what the Bible in another context would call your birthright. It's something that's been placed in you by God in your spiritual DNA that when you're born again in Christ, there's a calling. There's something that's in you. It's your birthright. It's what Paul meant in Romans eleven twenty nine 29, when he said that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, It's something that he has placed inside of you. It's there. It's yours for the taking before you live it out. Now, I want to make this clear. This anointing of calling is not the end of the anointing on your life. It is not an absolute. It is not a guarantee that you're definitely going to fulfill that calling that he has. We read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament about Esau. And it says concerning Esau, it says that he despised his birthright, meaning that there was something that was given for him, something that was placed in him, but he chose something else over it, and it wasn't worth it to him to take what God had purposed and planned for his life. He had the call, but he didn't answer it. He refused it. It's what Jesus meant. When Jesus said several times in the New Testament, he said that many are called, but few are chosen. There's a calling upon a lot of people, but there's only a few people that take it to the next step of actually walking in the calling that God has for their life. Jesus said this in many ways uh, throughout. So what the point is, is that the anointing of calling or the anointing of purpose, essentially, it's a blueprint. It's spiritual DNA that's been placed inside of you. It's the plan. That God has for your life. When people say that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, that's what it is. It's the plan that God has for your life. It is not the actual fulfillment of the plan. It is simply the opportunity that he's given. And so the anointing of calling that David received when Samuel came and smeared him for the first time was Purely based upon what God had put inside of David, his talent, his ability, I'll use the word, his potential, what could be in his life, okay? That was the first anointing. Now, the second anointing, which we have read tonight in our text, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to call that the anointing of character, or you could use the word in your notes, proof, The anointing of character or the anointing of proof, okay? Now, this anointing was not done by Samuel or done by a prophet, but rather this was done by the collective tribe that represented the family and the extended family of David. David was from the tribe of Judah, and now he's anointed king over the tribe of Judah, and it's done by people who knew David at this point. Samuel didn't know David. Nobody knew David back at the beginning, but these people, now they know David. David grew up with these people. It would be Judah, the tribe, it would be like growing up in an area like a county, like Dutchess County. It might even be similar to the population of Dutchess County. In, In a nation that was less in totality than the size of our state. And so this wasn't a large area of land, and these people knew each other or they knew of each other. What we know of David is that even as a young man right out of high school, he already had a reputation that went beyond the borders of his county or of his tribe. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that in Gibeah, which was where the palace was, where the politics were happening, that in Gibeah, David has a reputation of being gifted athletically, musically, academically, personality, spirituality, and he was good looking. That's what it tells us in one verse concerning David's reputation. He was known in government to be a talented young man. He was a good man. He was further than elevated by the slaying of Goliath. Now, how many in here don't know about David and Goliath? Is there anybody in here that's never heard the story of David and Goliath? We all know that story. And when David killed Goliath with a slingshot and then cut off his head with Goliath's own sword, that was an amazing accomplishment for David. And I'm certain that David saw it as an amazing accomplishment. But I don't think God saw it as an accomplishment. I don't think that was God's intent. It wasn't God's purpose for David in killing Goliath to give him that kind of recognition or, 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 you know, kind of that attention. Here was what God was thinking. For David, it was an accomplishment. But for God, it was an invitation. You say, an invitation for what? An invitation for everyone who would hear that story to set their eyes upon this young man, David. Because when a young man like David takes down a big man like Goliath and you hear about it, you remember that name and you remember that story. And what God was essentially saying is he says, I want the eyes of the entire nation on this young man. And they were turned onto this young man. However, what was about to happen was not gonna be as exciting for David as the falling of Goliath. Because what happened next was not exaltation, but humiliation. And David went from championing Goliath's head 25 miles into the capital, look what I did, to now all of a sudden, humiliation, insult, demotion, setback, suffering, rejection, persecution, complication, danger, slander, everything that could possibly knock someone down was thrown at David for the next several years all in the sight of the people who one day would maybe reign him or or ordain him to be king. Also, at the same time that David was going through all of that, David maintained and upheld his place of responsibility. He was steadfastly led the people that were slowly joining themselves to him because they had confidence in him slowly, little at a time. He began a family and he was able under tremendous pressure, under tremendous stress of those years of preparation to balance that out and to work it out even while he was trying to deal with the difficulty that he himself was under. And he kept his poise as a leader to those men that were with him. And slowly over that time, David was winning the confidence of the people of his tribe that were watching him go through all of this. 400 men became 600 men. Everyone knew about David. We know that because when we read about Nabal and Abigail, Abigail was fully familiar with who David was and what he was going through and where he was headed. She represents the general populace. And Nabal represents the naysayer, the people that were looking at David and going like, I don't know. You know, who cares, you know? But little by little, God was letting people see not the accomplishments of the man, but the character of the man that was being developed and forged in him while he was going through the difficulties of his preparation. And the confidence that the people were putting in David was not based on his talent, his giftedness, or his accomplishments, but rather it was based upon his character, what they were seeing in him. And when David had fully proved his character, weeping and lamenting over the death of Saul, rewarding the men of Jabesh Gilead for dealing respectfully and honoring the body of Saul, when they saw the character of the man, there was a resounding yes to the question of, will you put yourself under his leadership and make him the king? And the people that knew David the closest were confident enough in his character to say, we know him, we've watched him, we've seen him, we trust him, and they made him the king over their tribe. That was the second anointing in David's life. The third one, would not come for another seven and a half years. We'll call that one the anointing of capacity. Or you could call it the anointing of popularity, whichever one you choose and you want to use. And that's when David will eventually, and maybe this is a spoiler alert because it's not gonna happen until chapter five. David will become the king over the entire nation. And this anointing, the third anointing, when David becomes the king over the unified nation is based mostly on his reputation and his accomplishments because those people don't really know David like the people in his own tribe. In our society, we would kind of equate it to David went viral. All right? He was faithful with a little. He kept going. His reputation caught on. And people from a distance began to respect what he represented and what the opportunity was there. And they made him king collectively. It was an an anointing of popularity or of reputation. It was the approval of the general public. Jesus said these words. He said that whoever is faithful with a little... To him, more will be given. That's Matthew chapter 13, verse 12. And, and he kind of speaks of it as something that's automatic. If you're just faithful with what you have, it's gonna grow, it's gonna add on. There's no mention of character, There's, there it has nothing to do with, with who you are. It's if you're faithful, it's gonna grow, okay? Jesus would say in Luke 16, 11, he would say that if you're unfaithful with unrighteous mammon, then who's going to commit to you the true riches? And the idea is, is that as you prove yourself in the smaller things, you're going to become ruler or you're going to have possession of bigger things. Okay, And that's what's happening with David in the third anointing is that the whole nation is saying, okay, we'll throw in our hat with this guy. He'll, he'll be our king. Now, I want to say this. The anointing of popularity, this third anointing in David's life, is actually easier to obtain because people are appointing you from a distance, okay? They don't have to know you personally, you know, in the whole thing. And and here's, here's why this is critical and why I'm talking about this tonight, is because it is possible, not just for a David, but for anyone, for you and I, it is possible to be anointed with purpose or calling and to have talents and ability and potential. And you can use your talents and your ability and potential and you can go viral and you could obtain the anointing of popularity, having never proven your character having never received the second anointing, the approval of God, the seal of the kind of character that has the capacity to honor God in a larger setting. David has all three. I wanna talk tonight about the second anointing, this anointing of character, the anointing of proof, because it's important. It represents this idea of character. It represents what and who you are on the inside. Your root, your soul, the deepest part of who you are. Your character, as the Bible would describe it or talk about it, is the essence of your truest person, your naked self, who you are in total secret, the you that God only knows perfectly. He knows you even better than you know you. You only know you second best. God knows you even better than you know you. That's the person that represents your character. It's who you are in your thoughts, in what the Bible calls the hidden person of the heart. And your character, what you are on the inside, has nothing to do with what family you were born into or what race or nationality or background you have. It has nothing to do with your ability, your natural ability, or your talents or your intellect or the gifts that you've been given. It has nothing to do with your possessions, your education, or the level of wealth that you have. It has nothing to do with your accomplishments, anything that you've ever done or even will do. It has nothing to do with your titles and degrees or your trophies. It is altogether separate from all of those other things. And character is only measured by the alignment between the real you that's on the inside And the presented you that everyone sees on the outside. It's the only way that it can be truly measured. And talent does not indicate character. Giftings, abilities, capacities do not translate into character, they are completely separate things. When I was growing up, and and I would say even to this day, just so that I still own it, I've always been attracted to greatness people that kind of come to the top of their game in something. I remember being between 8 and 10 years old, and I'd heard about Iron Mike Tyson, and he was just coming into his prime. It was kind of like the middle, late 80s. And I, I, I heard about him and I saw one of his fights and I saw the way he would punch with his legs, you know, and just like people, giants would just buckle under this guy. and I would hear the words undisputed, undefeated, heavyweight champion of the world, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, that's the kind of man I want to be undisputed, undefeated, heavy, it didn't work out, obviously, you know, heavyweight champion of the world, you know, the whole thing. And and I just remember like following this guy and I got my hands on this little book that, that, that told you about your favorite people and Mike Tyson was in it. And there was actually a thing where you could send him fan mail. And I did it. I wrote a letter to Mike Tyson, telling him how amazing I thought he was, and asking if maybe he might send me an autographed picture or something like that. I never heard anything back from that, but I was just fascinated. I remember being that age and doing it, you know. But then the early 90s came, and Mike Tyson went to jail for rape, and he was maligned for drug use, and he went to prison, and the whole thing. And, and I remember scratching my head, and being like, maybe that's Maybe that's not the type of man I want to be. Maybe I want the one thing without the other. The man had talent, but the man didn't have character. As the 90s progressed, I remember being 18 years old, and I heard for the first time the name Tiger Woods, which amazingly is back in the the news again. And he was the rave of golf. And I was 18, he was 22, and people were saying, no one has ever seen anything like this before. And I wasn't a fan of golf. I'm still not to this day. But I was attracted to the greatness of it. He was at the top of his game. Came out a few years later that he was a man of maybe not the best character. He was anointed. He was viral. He was talented. He was commended. But he wasn't filled with character. Mark McGuire, man, he broke Babe Ruth's record. Babe Ruth's home run record, and we counted together 70 home runs, 71, 72, you know, and it, whoa! And then it came out a few years later PEDs, performance enhancing drugs. And this man who was at the top of his game, he was viral, he was anointed, but yet the character, there wasn't an alignment between who the man was on the inside. And what he was perceived to be by what was put on the outside. There was a misalignment there. The character piece was missing. And all of a sudden, the accomplishments didn't mean that much. Well, I got saved. And right around the turn of the century, I was a new Christian. And I was going to a a good, healthy Bible teaching church. And I heard the name of a pastor. I don't want to use it because it will distract from the study. But I heard the name of a pastor who's just amazing. He's at the top of his game. There's over 20,000 people in his church. He's filled with wisdom, and he's funny, and he connects, and he communicates. And we actually went to his church on our honeymoon. We planned it around being in this particular city on the weekend so we could go to this church. And I tell you that Queen Sheba was not less enamored with Solomon than I was being in this church. I mean, the sea of people, every seat was filled There was a shuttle that had to carry you from the parking lot to where the sanctuary was. There was an aquarium that you had to walk around filled with tropical fish in the kid's wing. The bookstore was bigger than half of this sanctuary, just the bookstore of it. We went into the service. We were floored by the power of the message. A hundred people went forward at the end of the service to answer the altar call, and the message was about marriage, I mean, they got saved in a message about marriage. I mean, he was at the top of his game. And and I thought, that's the kind of man that I want to be. I mean, he's got it all. He's definitely got a calling. The guy's gifted, he's definitely got capacity. I mean, look at this place, and he's a pastor. He must have character. He's the total package. And for years, I would keep one eye. What's going on there? What an amazing church. The way they're reaching their community. The way they're mobilized. The way they're producing pastors and raising up leadership. The way they're making an effect. This is the way the church is going to be. And then chapter, well, 2014 came around. And I remember right where I was. It was April. I don't remember what day exactly, but it was April of 2014. And Pastor Bobby called me. and He said, Nick, are you sitting down? I said, no. And he said the name of this pastor, and he didn't have to say anything else. And I sat there, and it was infidelity, and it wasn't once. It was a pattern over many years, and there were other issues as well, and all that comes out once it comes out. And I remember there, I, I sat in silence. I was stunned. I was stunned. I sat, was in my bedroom. I was by myself. I sat on the edge of my bed. I couldn't talk. I don't even know if I was breathing. I, I must have been, but, but I was so, I couldn't believe what I just heard. And I remember the first words out of my mouth after sitting for like a half hour, my, my first words were, is this a game? Is this even real? Does any of this even matter? I remember that feeling so Intensely, and I, I remember once I injured myself. I was in the gym, and I, I, I was working out with one of these guys that does like strongman competitions. And obviously, I'm not that guy, but I was, and I, I did something to my back. I was deadlifting. I never found out even to this day what I did, but something inside obviously broke, <laughs> and, and it, it took a long time for it to heal. But it was the same type of feeling spiritually. As I sat there, something broke. Something happened, and it, and it took a while to heal. And, and that was the big question. like, does any of this even matter? Like, I don't get it. You know, I don't understand. I remember not too long after, sometime in, in the month or two after, Bobby had a guest speaker here, and he asked me to drive this man to uh, one of the New York airports after a Wednesday night service. And so I, I did, and, uh, and, and somehow this pastor's name came up in the conversation, and I said, tell me what you think about all that. And I'm, I'm sitting here trying to make ends meet. My check engine light's on I, in my head. I can't figure this out. Like, what's going on? And I remember this guy, this pastor, he just, he sat silent for a moment or two and he was familiar with the situation, and, and here was the answer that he gave me. He said to me, "He said, you know, I, I've had I had two experiences in my life uh, that were spread out over the course of a couple of years. He said, one of them is that I, I hate using names. I'm going to not use names. But he said I met this famous pastor somewhere in the middle of the country, and he said huge church, massive reputation, like big, big, you know, the whole thing. And he said, you know, he was the nicest guy that I've ever met, and he was filled with energy." And he was extremely driven. That's what he said about this pastor. And then he said, a couple of years later, I met another famous pastor in Southern California. You would know the name if I told you he's a famous author. He's written many books. And he said, I met him, big church, huge reputation, a lot of people, been in it for a long time. And he said, he had a ton of energy And he was extremely driven, but he was a jerk. That's what he said to me. And he goes, what I learned after kind of pondering those two encounters with those two pastors is that all you really need to have a big church is to have a lot of energy and be extremely driven. And then the conversation went silent for like 15 minutes. And I just sat there for a minute and it took me a long time to process this whole thing. You know, this whole idea of how is God using someone who is crooked? How is it working? Why is it happening? I don't understand it. I don't get it. And all I kept saying to myself is it just doesn't matter. Nothing matters. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 20,000 people in your church doesn't matter. Having a campus and shuttle buses to get people in doesn't matter. An aquarium and a bookstore, it doesn't matter. A hundred people saved a week, it doesn't matter. Spiritual fruit doesn't matter. Spiritual fruit doesn't matter. I'm going, how could spiritual fruit doesn't matter? And, and, And I'm not, I can't wrap my head around this. And then I read John 15. And in John 15, verse 16, Jesus kind of makes sense of it all, because Jesus agrees. Jesus says, your fruit doesn't matter. Your fruit doesn't matter. Your spiritual fruit doesn't matter, okay? Here's what matters. He says, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. That's calling. And I have ordained you, anointed you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, okay? Fruit matters, but listen, and that your fruit should, what? Remain. Remain. See, it's not about fruit. It's not about 100 people a week. It's not about what you did yesterday. It's not about what you're doing right now. What matters is will that fruit remain? Because what I experienced, what I saw and what I've seen is that you can have a lot of fruit and then once the tree falls down, the fruit don't matter anymore because you've ruined the fruit that was. It's fruit that remains that makes a difference. And so the question is, does anything matter? Yeah, you know what matters? Character matters. That's what matters. Character matters. Who you are on the inside, who you are in secret, who you are in the heart. We say, well, where does character come from? Is character just like a gift? Is that like, you know, like maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Like where where does character come from? Is it something that some people have and other people just don't? No, no. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that everyone is born with flawed character. Everyone. No one is born with good character. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart, it's universal. It's singular because it's total. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who can know it? In other words, we don't even know the depths of our own depravity. No one is born with good character. Okay? But listen. Jesus, when he died, not only did he provide a sacrifice that was acceptable to forgive all past sin, but he also in dying and rising again, provided a way to forge and form new character inside the human heart. See, two things happen at salvation. When a person gives their life to Jesus and comes to him in repentance and faith, Number one is that your name is written in heaven. That's what Jesus said. When you give your life to Jesus, you pass from death to life. Your name is written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. At the same moment, listen, Jesus writes his name in your heart. So your name is written in heaven. His name is written in your heart. But that does not mean that you are automatically just like Jesus. Anybody in here get saved and you are automatically just like Jesus? Jesus. All your sins were gone. You always knew what to do. You were perfect every moment. No, of course, we know that that's not what happens. We're not perfect the moment that we get saved. But what he gives us when he writes his name in our hearts is he gives us the capacity and the ability to have good character. So salvation is complete and automatic when we profess faith in Christ. But character is not. So here's where character comes from. Paul defines it this way. Romans chapter 2 it's verses six and seven, though I only gave you seven up on the on the screen. I'm gonna read six. It says that God will render to every man according to his deeds. And then listen, it says, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Do you hear the language of Paul there? He's saying that to those who by patient continuance in well-doing Seek for, which means that there's a continual moving in a particular direction, glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. See, good character isn't something that just happens, it's something that is cultivated inside of our hearts. In Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 and onward, Paul says to the Ephesian church there, he says that this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you." Henceforth, or from now on, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. In New King James, it says the words no longer, that you no longer walk in the way that that you used to walk, the way that Gentiles walk. What does that mean? It means that there's a choice that I'm given. I have the choice of whether or not I'm going to walk in the character of what I was, or if I'm going to walk in the character of what I'm now being empowered to be by the spirit of Christ in me. And the rest of Ephesians and really most of the New Testament is just God giving us empowerment to make the choices that lend towards the shaping of good character within our hearts and in our lives. But it's something that's cultivated over time. It's long, hard, painful work. We work together with God. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to, to this passage. He says, for we are laborers together with God. Do you hear that? That there's an agreement that I'm walking with God. And as he's showing me what's wrong in me, I'm repenting of it and forsaking it. And as he's showing me what's right and the right way to go, I'm agreeing with that. And then I'm choosing to walk in that and I'm using the power that he's given me to do it. That I'm working together with God. He says, For you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. You're God's garden, you're God's building. And then Paul says, According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another one builds thereon. But let everyone, and here's the word listen, let everyone take heed how he builds thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, that's one category, or wood, hay, and stubble, that's another category, every man's work will be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he'll receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He himself shall be saved. Your soul will be saved, but yet so as by fire. What's the point? Listen, you are building your life day by day, step by step and moment by moment right now. And every day, with every choice, every decision that you make, the way that you interpret and handle and respond to every trial, every setback, every difficulty, you are given an opportunity to build character one way or the other. It's either character that the Bible would call gold, silver, and precious stones, which are fireproof. They're going to abide. They're going to endure. Or it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's different. It's not going to last See, the outward of my life, it looks good. Oh, that could, that, wow. Man, calling, capacity, people, fame, books, songs. Wow. But what's on the inside, that tells the true story. And when the day comes, when the fire comes, that exposes what's really there on the inside. And only God knows if what's going on on the inside is equal to what is being put forth on the outside. And what that means is that character matters because all of your calling, potential, talent, ability, accomplishments, titles, reputations, all of that rest upon the foundation of your character. And most people receive gladly the anointing of calling based upon their talents, their drive, their energy, their education, And they'll gladly receive the anointing of capacity when the whole nation says king and you have a billion subscribers and you're honored and hailed as shapers and influencers and all that stuff that the culture holds up so uh, amazingly. But most people never pursue, they never receive the anointing of character. They hide behind the wood, the hay, and the stubble. But here's what you need to know, is that at the reckoning, And there will be a reckoning when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is no such thing in the eyes of God as extraordinary. In other words, you say, well, it doesn't really matter for me because I'm not a king. I'm not a priest. I'm not a prophet. And I'm not viral. and Nobody cares. Nobody looks. And it doesn't matter. So my character, no, 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 no. It does matter. Because at the reckoning, everybody is asked the same questions. Billy Graham is going to be asked the same exact questions that you are asked. Those questions are very simply, what did you have? What did you do? Were you faithful or unfaithful? And everyone is rewarded proportionately according to the answer of those questions. Meaning that you might not have the capacity, the talent, the ability that Billy Graham does but that doesn't matter. What matters is, are you faithful with what God has given you? And if you are, then your reward is equal to Billy's or anybody else's. But if you have what Billy had, but you're not faithful, then you lose your reward, even if it seemed like you were effective in your life. That means that character matters, whether I'm a prophet or whether I'm apparent, because it affects the lives of those that are leaning on me just the same. I have a picture that I want to show you. If everything works tonight, it's going to go up on the screen. But we found this in the 909 area when we were hiking, and it's a a tree that fell right near one of the main paths. It's about 15 minutes from here. It's really not that far away. Is it going to go up? That right there is the root base of this tree. And if you look at the little people at the bottom, those are my kids and some of their friends. Is it up there? just to give you an idea of the size of this thing. I mean, the tree is like one of those yellow pines or white pines, the ones that just grow in the Northeast just massively. And this thing just, I don't know how it fell, but it fell. And you just see this massive, massive thing. There's another picture just also for proportion and and size. Can you throw up the other one? You see those two little heads at the top? Those are two of my boys. Riley and Noah, you know, just, I mean, the thing is just massive. Can you go back to the first picture for a minute? I want to show you something because this is why I put this picture up there. If you look on your left, on the left side, right about the middle of the picture, you see a branch shooting out. You guys see that? It's a little bit thicker than a man's arm. Do you know what that is? It's a maple sapling. And there's other ones. It's not just that one, but if you go on the other side, and I wanted a picture of it, but didn't have one. If you go on the other side, you'll see that there were all of these other smaller trees whose roots were intertwined into the roots of the big tree. And when the big tree went down, guess what happens to the little ones? They go down too. And my point is this, mom, dad, dad is that it doesn't matter what you think about your own insignificance or how it doesn't matter who you are in secret or that if you're found out, it's not that big of a deal because you're not leading a church of 20,000 or you're not a speaker of an international apologetics ministry or you're not, or you're not, or you're not. It matters because if you're a parent and your character on the inside doesn't match what you're professing to be on the outside, then that's gonna have a profound effect on the people that are rooted into the same soil as you and are dependent on the strengths of your roots to grow their own. Character matters. It's vital. Your character is, is, is ingrained in the very purpose behind what God has given you to do because what God has given you to do is to affect other people. And if your character's flawed, guess what's gonna happen? So what does all this have to do with David and his second anointing by the tribe of Judah? Here's what. Is that David being anointed by his tribe, by the people that knew him intimately, that had watched him go through what he went through, those people and that anointing was the most important and the most significant of the anointings in David's life. Because what it reveals about David is that he was doing more than just enduring the hard times that he was going through while he was running from Saul for all of those years. It reveals that David was embracing those hard times and leveraging the difficulty of those days to seize an opportunity to shape character inside his heart. I hear these days, and you do too, I hope maybe not out of your own mouth, but a lot of parents complaining about their kids being home right now. Oh, get them back to school. This is so hard. You know, like they're here all the time. You know, this is crazy. And I got to get out of the house. And I got to do things, you know. Right. Man, that's a trial. And I am with you. Okay. I'm a homeschool dad. I'm not the homeschool teacher. Okay. Okay. I'm like upper administration. I make the decisions and I write the checks. All right. So I I don't want to like say that I totally feel your pain. All right. But I understand it's constant. It's 24 seven. But what if, what if that, what if that very thing that you can't wait for it to be over? What if it's an opportunity for you to leverage the difficulty of it to first of all, see something inside of you that's maybe twisted a little bit. Why don't I want to be around my kids? Like, why, why, why don't I want to raise them? Like, why do I want them gone? Like, why, why is this going on inside of me? Do you know what that is? That's the mirror of truth giving you an opportunity to see something that ain't right inside of you. And if you seize that opportunity, you can say, Father, forgive me for just being a caretaker and not rearing and giving life to the people that have come out of my body. Lord, help me. Forgive me. Change me. That's character shaping that's gold silver and precious stones that's moving in the right direction it's putting away the old and building with something new and you know how you know if that's what you're doing because when that character is being shaped and forged and those opportunities are being seized to give life and speak life do you know what happens is that you become anointed in their eyes isn't that what happened to david I mean, he suffered in their presence. He endured in their presence for years, and it won their approval to the point where they'd say, that's the guy we want to follow. That's the one that we want to listen to. That's the one that we trust. That's the one that we're happy to pay taxes to because we know the kind of person he is and how he's going to use what we give, and we'll get behind him. And do you know that can happen in your home? And what happens when you're a teenager? comes to that point in his or her life when they're making decisions about where they're going to go and what they're going to do for education or who they're going to be around relationally or who they're going to get involved with romantically. And they trust you and respect you enough because they've seen your character. They've seen that there's an alignment between what you say you are on the inside and what they see you do on the outside to a point where they say, I trust that and I want to be a part of it. Doesn't that make it worth it at that point? It is vital that every one of us diligently pursue the anointing of character because what our life amounts to in the end hinges on that alone and on nothing else. You know, there's a a more vital reason why character matters, more even than the effect that it has on other people and our legacy and all of that. There's There's an even bigger thing, and that's this what does God think? and see when he looks at our lives. I mean, how often do we even think about that, really? Like, God, are you pleased with me? Like, God, when you look at my life and, and you look at what's going on, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've got so, so far to go. And every day I'm, I have to seek continually to, to go that way. I know that I'm flawed, but God, are you pleased with what's going on inside of me? Jesus, I use these words, they shock me. It's John 5, 44. He said this to religious people, church people. He said, how can you believe you that seek honor from one another, but don't seek the honor that comes from God only? In other words, at the very foundation of of saying, I believe in God, Jesus is saying, if you only care what people see when they look at you on the outside, and there's no care or attention to what God sees when he looks at what's on the inside, how can you even say you have faith? Jesus doesn't have even faith. You say you believe, you don't even believe. Like, that's crazy to me to think about that. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, Paul said this. He says, for not him who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. In other words, isn't it like, well, I'm doing pretty good. I, how are my public opinion polls today? And what are people thinking and seeing and talking about me after that great teaching last Wednesday night? You know, it was long, but it was good, you know? No, it doesn't even matter. God, what do you see? What do you hear? Do you approve of it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he said, he said, I beat my body and I bring it into subjection to my will. I don't obey it. He goes, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word is disapproved. Meaning I can gain the approval of men and yet God can look at my life and say I disapprove of it. And Paul would say to that same group of people, the Corinthians, he would say this, and here's the warning. He would say that the day will declare it. The day will declare it. There will come a day that what is on the inside will be revealed. And if my character is not what it is supposed to be, if my character is not moving in the right direction, then everything that I have built with my life will crumble before my eyes, whether I'm still here to see it or whether it happens after my departure but the day will declare it. You know, as time goes by right now in the world that we live in and temptation and lawlessness increases, do you know the day is declaring it? The Bible says that there'll be a great falling away in the last days. Jesus would say that because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold because sin will be so acceptable and so free and so easy and so, so, Disguisable. He says that your, your heart's going to get hard and the love of many are going to life cold. There's going be so many people that are just going to fall away. They're just going to give up on the things of God. They're going to do it. But listen, good character is the hedge of endurance. Timothy, Paul wrote this to Timothy. I'm closing. You guys can come on up here. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. He said, Timothy, guard or keep that which is committed to your trust. Guard or keep what's been committed to your trust. Listen, you have been anointed by God. He has a calling and a purpose for your life. He is going to bring you through whatever he needs to bring you through to prove that calling, to bring your character into alignment and equilibrium with the weight of what he's given you to do, no matter what it is. And if that calling that God has placed in your life is not precious to you and you do not guard it, then you will be swept away by the compromise it is so easy to embrace and hide it behind wood, hay, and stubble of what appears to be good to everyone else. Listen, if you are not smeared, anointed in your character, it will not be long before you are smeared in your reputation. And if you live long enough, and you see enough Mike Tysons, and enough Tiger Woods, and enough Pastor (laughs) So-and-Sos, then you understand the truth of that matter. When you prove your character, do you know that you're proving God right? See, if God gives you a calling, it's because he knows that you can fulfill that calling. And when your anointing of calling turns into an anointing of character, you're proving God right. God's saying, I knew, I knew, I knew that if you'd yield to me, if you'd walk with me, if you'd labor with me, that you'd see this come through in your life. What trials are you facing right now that are actually opportunities for God, for you to leverage good character to come forth in your life? It's a good question to ask. What things in your life right now are the greatest threat to your good character? What things are trying to get in, to come against that thing that we're called to guard, may God give us wisdom and may he bring us through. And may we be a people that are filled not just with a calling, not just with the praises of people, but may we have the character of Christ formed in us. Amen. Father, we just thank you tonight for, for your word and we do pray that you'd help us. We need your grace, Lord. We need your strength. God, we need discipline. We need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We need good vision. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be aware of what's going on around us. And God, as we see the fallen trees, and as we see more falls, the storms come, I pray that you would strengthen our roots, that we'd be rooted and grounded in your love, in your person, in your presence, and in your truth. So would you help us, Lord? We pray it as a congregation, that we'd be a congregation of David's look at us and say that we'd have a heart like yours and that we'd be pleasing to you. God, would you do it for us now and help us, Lord, to lay aside those things that need to be set aside, that we might run. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast.